All right. Today we are concentrating on just four verses. So I'm going to read these for you and then we'll pray. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pray with me. Lord, we now, we have sung, we have prayed, we have fellowshiped, and so now we simply want to listen. We spend so much of our week, Lord, speaking, busy, frantic, frenetic. And we love Sundays for so many reasons, but one of them is because this is a time when we're forced to slow down. And we're forced to, well, no, we're, we're privileged to be able to hear what you have to say to us. And so, Lord, as we, as we sit and we focus on these four verses, we ask that you would please speak to us by your Spirit. I need your help, but yet, Lord, all of us need your help. So please come visit with us, we pray, as you already have. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for being seated. If you're a note taker this morning, I'll give the title right away. The title of this sermon is The Day When Heaven Came Down. The Day When Heaven Came Down. Let's exercise our minds for a moment. Can you remember a time, a moment, when beauty left you so captivated that all you could do is stand there in stunned silence. Or maybe you can think about a time where you watched a movie or you heard a piece of music from an orchestra and tears welled up in your eyes. Do we have any criers here when it comes to movie watching? Want to raise your, oh yeah, oh yeah, yep. Or maybe there was a time when your heart was was unburdened because of a simple sentence that someone spoke to you. You probably don't have to think very hard to, to, to think of moments like these, moments when your heart, your mind, your emotions were drawn in to the moment. Friends, these are, these are the moments we long for. These are the moments that we go through our lives waiting for. And this is because, friends, we, we are not merely physical beings. We live in a world, a culture, a society that would have you believe that you are merely human, that you are merely material, that you are merely physical, but you are much more than just your body. Each of us have been created by God with a soul that longs for something deeper, something greater, something more wonderful, something that we cannot touch with our hands, but that we know for, without a shadow of a doubt that it is real. 
Paul David Tripp once wrote, human beings are hardwired for awe. We are worshipers. We are searching for joy, hope, and fulfillment. This longing is deep in the heart of every human being. It wanders around in your soul. Your heart cries out every day to be enveloped by the glory of God. And whether we know it or not, the desire to be amazed and satisfied is actually a universal craving to see God face to face. We are on a quest for life. We have only two places to look. You can search for life in what he created, or we can look to our creator for whom and by whom all things exist. This quest that you and I are on today is the reason why the right song touches our emotions. It's why videos of soldiers coming home after deployment bring us to tears. It's why we love to be around humble people and gentle people and quiet people. It's because, it's because deep inside of us, friends, there is a longing in our soul, that eternal part of us, to be drawn to beauty, to be drawn to love, to be drawn to purity. Why? Because this is who God is. And these things create wonder and awe in us because you and I were made for God. We long to be enveloped by the glory of God. Well, on the day of Pentecost that we read about just now in Acts chapter 2, this day has gone down in history as the, the day when God made it possible for wonder to be satisfied to enable us, as it were, to see God face to face. It's the day when God came down and said, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what your life experiences are, here is the one to whom all of your longing points come and be satisfied. For the next three or four sermons or so in this series, we're going to, if you can believe it, slow it down even more in our timeline here, and we're going to linger on this momentous day in the Christian church, the day of Pentecost. And we're going to see how God caused the kingdom of heaven to break into this world that is longing for the wonderful, that's longing for the amazing. Now, on your series card, you can see that uh, we moved into chapter 2, and with that, we moved into movement 1, the time when the word of God began to sweep the city of Jerusalem. You remember Jesus' Acts 1-8 promise that he said that his disciples would be his, his witnesses starting in Jerusalem. And so that's what's happening on this particular day. Your card's already messed up in terms of references, but that's okay. We're in movement one right now. And today we're simply going to look at how this promise began to be fulfilled and how God through the sending of his Holy Spirit on his church, intended to end our quest for life and to be enveloped with his glory. Friends, do you feel that longing this morning for glory? Do you sense that longing for the wonderful, for the amazing? 
I want to tell you that 2,000 years ago, heaven came down to satisfy that longing. We open up this wonderful chapter with the, the newborn church gathered for church, gathered for prayer, gathered for worship, gathered for waiting. On this particular day, uh, Jerusalem was bursting at the seams. There were, there were people from all over the known world that had gathered their Jews from all over the known world to celebrate the annual Passover and the Feast of Weeks, which took place 50 days after the Passover. That word Pentecost, if you're interested, comes from the Greek word pentekonta, which simply means 50. It's the number of days after the Passover. And every good Jew, no matter who you were, you would celebrate the feast. You would come from wherever you were in the world. And uh, that feast, which by the first century, by the way, was, was a celebration of uh, the, the end of the grain harvest. This was a time to, to give thanks to God for his provision, uh, for the food that he's provided, for the provision that he had given uh, to his people. But also, it was the commemoration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. You remember way back in Exodus when God gave his people his words, his law. And so the people would come all from all around the world. They'd gather in Jerusalem and they would celebrate God's provision and God's word being given to them. Now it's in this historical setting that the membrane between heaven and earth was dissolved. And just as when Moses received the law, the Lord descended with a cloud and with fire. Luke tells us in verse 2 that suddenly there came from heaven a sound of a mighty, mighty rushing wind. And divided flames as of fire spread out and rested on each of these men and women and presumably boys and girls gathered for prayer. And they were all filled Luke says, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is Spirit-inspired, ecstatic speech. We're going to put that on a peg and we're going to study that the next time we come back here. But this is the fulfillment of the promise. This is what Jesus said would happen. This is what the prophets uh, foretold. The Spirit has come, the helper from heaven, to be with his people forever. Now, what's going on here? What, what is up with the wind and the fire? You can imagine what it must have been like to be sitting there that day and have this phenomena happening as you're simply gathered for prayer. What's going on with this? Well, as we have, we'll see, God does not waste divine demonstrations. During unique, pivotal times in redemptive history, God uses physical, visible symbols to convey spiritual realities. Think about the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, or the pillar of, of fire and cloud that were in the wilderness with the Israelites. Today, even, when we use the waters of baptism, that's a symbol that points to a spiritual reality, or the bread and the wine and the communion, that points to a greater spiritual reality. So on Pentecost, these visible manifestations of sight and sound appeal to the human senses to, to convey the presence of God. Consider with me what these, uh, these appearances of elements 
might have meant. I'll give, you, I'll give you two points today. The first, we'll just look at both of these. The first is the meaning of the wind. The meaning of the wind. Verse 2 says that there was a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And the sound filled the house where they were sitting. Now, I, I don't know if there was an actual wind blowing in the house. I don't know if the walls were shaking and the curtains were moving. But it was a sound that would have arrested the senses of everyone there. That word wind literally, literally means a blowing blast. And wind conveys the idea of power. Anyone who's ever been through a hurricane or, or a tornado knows how strong wind can be. It, it can destroy. It can move the most anchored buildings. It can, it can cause a million-ton bridge to sway. It can move a boulder. I remember we used to live near Grandfather Mountain, and we were not far from there, and there was a, a, a gust of wind on the, the parking lot up there at Grandfather that moved a boulder into the parking lot. Wind is, is power. I'm reminded of Gollum's riddle to Bilbo. Voiceless it cries, wingless it flutters, toothless, toothless it bites, mouthless it mutters. Wind. What, what's, what's the divine reason for the sound of this blowing wind? Interesting, no? Well, I believe that God was saying on that day that his spirit had come. In the Hebrew language, the word for, for spirit or wind or breath are all the same word. And the spirits come to, to fill these men and women with, with breath and, and with life and, and with power. This, this moment was foretold, by the way, in the prophets. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37 uh, tells us about this moment. When God commanded Ezekiel to, to prophesy over the valley of dry bones, God's people. I'm not going to turn there. You can read this on your own. But there when he, he, he prophesied to the, to the breath, and the breath entered these bones, these skeletons. And God, said, God says that the skin covered over them, and they came alive. And then God said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath to breathe on them. And, and he did. And, and they lived and they stood on their feet and they became an exceedingly great army. You see, friends, until now, God had selectively bestowed his spirit on people. And often it was only temporary. In the Old Testament, the spirit would rush upon men or women for feats of power or prophets to speak in God's name. But if you wanted to get near the power of God, you had to go to Jerusalem and you had to go inside the temple and then you couldn't even get near the place where the real power was because that was in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go there once a year. And if he made a wrong move, he was dead. He was dead. That's the power of God. That's, that's the holiness of, of God. It, and it's a terrifying thing. Friends, if God doesn't shield people from his, his power, it will destroy them. It's a power that consumes. That is, unless he uses it, he wields it to preserve and to save. Here's what was happening on the day of Pentecost. The Lord told Ezekiel that men will know that he is the Lord when he raises him, them from the dead and puts his spirit in them, and his king reigns over them 
forever. Now these 120 disciples, these, these men, these women have, spiritually speaking, already been raised by dead, by, from the dead by virtue of their faith in and now spiritual union with the risen King Jesus. But when, when Luke tells us in verse 4 that they were all filled with the Spirit, this moment was the very first instance of a normative way of life for everyone who places their faith in Jesus alone to save them. Friends, wherever the gospel is preached and believed, that is the message that the Son of God has come to die for your sins on a cross and be raised again to new life, and he was. When you believe that message, faith is the evidence that the Spirit has come to breathe life into the spiritually dead. Jesus said, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. But from Pentecost onward, the church, the group of believers everywhere in the world, this is a a spirit-baptized, spirit-filled, exceedingly great army. Friends, to be a Christian, according to the New Testament, is to be filled with the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with God's power. Perhaps someone in here today says, you know, I, I, I hear that. I trust Jesus. I love him. He's my Savior. My life is dedicated to him. But I don't necessarily feel power. Do you feel that way? You feel that way sometimes or a lot of the times? I think what happens is we read accounts like this and what what we're going to see in the book of Acts, and and we read it, and and because we don't see connections with our own life experience, what we do is we, we draw conclusions about the work of the Spirit that, quite frankly, are not biblical, okay? Let me ease some anxiety for you here today, if that's you. The day of Pentecost, this event on the day of Pentecost was a unique event in salvation history, okay? Remember what I said to you early on, when we read the book of Acts, we're going to have to be good Bible students. We're going to need to be able to discern what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. What is descriptive is, is what happened uniquely in time, and it was a once and for all event. What's prescriptive is what should continue in the future as normative. So as far as heaven is concerned, the day of Pentecost was the day, the first day of the beginning of the last days. It it was the, the day when the power of the kingdom of God broke into this present evil age in order to spotlight the person and the work of Jesus Christ to the world. So as far as heaven is concerned, friends, Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is the final event before Christ returns. It's the final event. So the sending of the Spirit is a, is a non-repeatable event, an unrepeatable, unrepeatable event. It is, however, God's commitment to come and to remain with his people forever. It is, however, God's commitment to empower his people to be his servants. Now, I think that many in the church today, and I, I'm guilty of this too, have come to believe that the idea of power equals feeling. 
You know how when you wake up in the morning and you're dead tired and then you have a cup of coffee and you wake up a little bit and you feel power? You know what I'm talking about? Well, maybe for some of you it's three or four cups, but you, you feel energized. You feel power. You feel, feel something different. And we do that with our spiritual lives too. Today I feel like sharing my faith and so I'm going to go do it. I must have the power of God in me today. I, I feel like reading my Bible. I, I feel courage to, to live for Christ. I, I feel joy today. And so that must mean I'm filled with the Spirit. But then tomorrow I feel the opposite of those things. I don't feel like sharing my faith. I don't feel like waking up and reading my Bible. I don't feel like coming to the gathered church on Sunday. I don't feel that way. And so we equate Holy Spirit power with feeling. And yes, in the New Testament, there are certainly instances of great excitement caused by the Spirit's power. But listen, friends, even the apostles experienced sorrow and disappointment and, and discouragement and fear. To be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't always mean that we feel his tangible presence with us. And friends, to this I say we must allow the scripture to interpret our experience of God. Sinclair Ferguson says that one of the dangers that we make, that we, we approach is in studying the Holy Spirit is, is to begin by working from the inside out rather than from the outside in. We look at our experiences to, to inform how we read scripture rather than the other way around. Friends, you know where I see the work of the Spirit mostly in the book of Acts, and we'll see this as we go on, I see it in a church that endures in the face of persecution and suffering. I see the work of the Spirit in the, the faithfulness of this church, their willingness to count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ so that he would be made much of. There is where the Spirit is powerfully at work just as much as in a prophetic utterance. It's where you see men and women living for God when no one else is. Is that not the work of the Spirit? Friends, yes, the Holy Spirit is a wind. But sometimes he's like a gentle breeze. Sometimes he's just a sustaining breath when death is all around. Now, maybe you can say this for yourself. My own experiences confirm the truthfulness of the New Testament. There's been times in my life when I've experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit and it has felt like a downpour. Those moments are rare, but I've been there and they're wonderful experiences. But you know, a torrential downpour and a gentle falling mist both accomplish the same goal. Both drench the earth. Most of the, the Spirit's activity in my own life has been like that gentle mist. And this is because he is truly the self-effacing member of the Trinity. He is always at work to point away from himself and to the beauty and the glory and the satisfaction that is Jesus Christ, to deepen our desire for him, to give us a radical willingness to lay down our lives for his sake and take up 
our cross. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. But he knew that the day of Pentecost had to come before they could take up their cross and follow him. Loved ones, do you have that desire today? If you can say yes, that is the evidence of a life filled with the Spirit. When you think about your unsaved friends or family members, are you burdened for them? Do your eyes and heart well up with tears and emotion when you see people throwing their lives away for foolishness? When they could have life and life to the full in Christ? That's the, that's the Spirit of God. Do you feel like you're drawn to encourage a struggling saint during the week? It might just be a little simple text message or a prayer that you pray for someone. Friends, are you devoted to the body, to the fellowship, to the worship? That's the sign of the Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, should we be satisfied with everything? No. Paul says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. There should be a holy dissatisfaction about our experience of the Holy Spirit. We ought to desire a greater filling of God every moment of every day. But friends, I look out over a body that is filled with the Spirit. A body of men and women and boys and girls who love one another. That is the evidence of the Spirit of God. That is the fruit of Pentecost, as we will see. So take heart. To be a Christian is to be filled with the Spirit, and to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with Christ's love. So that's a little segue, a little, a little aside rather, but that's the sound, the power. Next, let's look at the meaning of the fire. This meaning of the sound and now the meaning of the fire. Verse 3 tells us that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, this is divine symbolism. They saw something, uh, pretty sure their heads were not on fire. This, these were tongues as of fire. This was a symbol of some deeper spiritual reality. And so whereas the wind was the symbol of God's power, the fire is a symbol of God's presence. All right? Again, in the burning bush, remember Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in a flame that did not consume the bush. Rather, it transformed the bush into the dwelling place of God. And we see the same in the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. When God sent his spirit on the day of Pentecost, he sent him not to consume his people, but to transform them, to make them a dwelling place of God. Ezekiel 37 said, my dwelling place shall be with them. Now, here's the thing about fire. Fire transforms by purifying. Isn't that what fire does? Take, for example, if you had a, a piece of some precious metal, maybe, maybe gold. Maybe you have some gold on your, your ring finger or around your neck right now. That, that gold in its natural condition is not pure gold. Well, neither is the stuff on you, but we'll leave that aside. That, that element is intermingled in its natural state with alloy and dirt and dust. And so in order to remove the alloy from that precious metal, 
that gold must be heated to extreme temperatures to melt away the alloy. Then it will be pure. And friends, this is like the work of the Spirit of God. John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was prophesying of the day of Pentecost when Jesus would baptize his church in the Holy Spirit and just as divided tongues as of fire were on their heads symbolizing the purifying presence of the Holy Spirit resting on each of them, the same Spirit has been given to every Christian in order to purify us. Now often when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we talk about things like uh, power for witness. And we talk about spiritual gifts. And these are things that we ought to talk about, and these are things that we ought not to neglect. But fire accompanied the sending of Jesus' spirit. Because God wanted to show that one significant reason that he gave his spirit to the church is what? Is to cleanse them. Is to purge them of remaining sin. It's to sanctify them for a life of holiness. Jesus said the Spirit would what? He would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. Let's consider another instance in the Old Testament where fire was a symbol of purification. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Before God sent Isaiah to prophesy, God gave him a vision of the throne room in heaven Isaiah saw angels calling to one another. Isaiah 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the temple where God's throne was shook at its core. And what did Isaiah do in response? Oh, this is pretty cool. No. Verse 5, Woe is me, he said, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, when you see the King, you are not casual. Isaiah saw the glory of God, and it brought a painful awareness of his sinfulness. Does the glory of God do that in our lives? But I want you to notice, too, that God didn't leave him that way. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Fire. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And we've often referred to Jesus' words in John 16, 14. He says, the Spirit will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. The tongues of fire resting on the disciples' head was God saying to the church, I have come to apply the grace that Christ supplied by his death and resurrection. Isn't that what the Spirit does in an act of regeneration? When an individual hears the gospel and believes, it's because 
The Spirit of God is at work within that individual to give them faith to receive what Jesus purchased for them, the grace that he purchased for them on the cross. Do you know grace does that work in us? That's what Paul said to Titus in Titus chapter 2. He said, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave him for us to redeem us from all all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You know, friends, one of the ways you can tell if you're a Christian and therefore have the Spirit is if this is true of you. Is this true of you? Do you see this work of the Spirit in you? Have you renounced a life of ungodly living Is your gaze fixed on heaven, not because it's heaven, but because that's where Jesus is and he's coming someday to collect his own to himself? Friends, I think there are a lot of people the world over in churches who believe themselves to be Christians when in actuality the purifying fire of the Spirit has never actually rested on them. They may like the idea of Christianity. They might like the concept of being in a church and being in a community. They might like the idea of God. They might like singing. They might like prayer. But they've never really had their guilt taken away, as Isaiah did, their sin atoned for. They've never looked to Jesus as the Savior for their sin. So they aren't living for him, and they certainly aren't waiting for his return. Friends, if you think heaven is your future, but you couldn't care less whether Jesus was there or not, may I humbly submit to you today that you may not be a Christian. John Piper says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If the answer is yes, it is not heaven that you're going to. Your heaven is here and you don't need Christ to have heaven here. This is the work of the Spirit of God. It's to make Christ lovely to us. It's to make Christ our all. And when the the Lord sent the Spirit to baptize the church in him, it was so that we would be made a people for his own possession. It would be me being made a pure people, a people that commune with and love the Son. Otherwise, as J.C. Ryle once said, what good is heaven if Christ is not your all on earth? It would be no place for you. It would be, its joys would be no joys for you. Its, its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. 
And so we come full circle. The Spirit of God came down to satisfy our longings in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the heaven that all true Christians long for today. Now, as we'll see later, we're going to see the disciples anointed by the Spirit to speak of the mighty works of God. And without a doubt, these men and women were speaking of the finished work of Jesus to the crowds in Jerusalem. But friends, before we get there, God wants us to see again that before we are his witnesses, we are recipients of his grace. We must receive before we can give. God sent his spirit on Pentecost to empower us to gladly follow Jesus no matter the personal cost and to purify for himself his own special possession, a people zealous for good works. And do you know what makes people zealous? You know what makes us want to do what God says? Maybe, or maybe it's for hobbies or maybe if it's for people or maybe it's for a cause. What makes us zealous, friends, is passion passion for something greater than ourselves. And that's why God came down on the church, to make us passionate for what God created us for, the glory of Jesus and communion with him. So how do we get this passion? I have one more scripture reference for you. Prior to his death, Jesus stood up at another feast in John chapter 7 and he said these words. John says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When I made that connection this week, I I, I sat for a while and I thought about those disciples. I wonder if those guys on the day of Pentecost thought back to that vision of Jesus standing up at the feast, yelling out, crying out, come and receive. He cried out to all the whoever's were in the crowd, every person on a quest to be amazed and and satisfied to receive him, to believe in him, and to drink, and to drink to the full. You'll have to forgive me for yet another reference to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, but you think I'd read these books all the time. I don't, actually, but these, these stories are fantastic. So there's a scene. This reminds me of a scene in the silver chair. And in this uh, scene, this girl that stumbled into Narnia, her name is Jill, Jill Pole. And she sees the lion. And, and any of us that saw a lion would do what Jill did. She ran from the lion. And she ran into the forest, and she re- wears herself out running into the forest. She moves deep into the darkness and she begins to hear a gurgling brook just beyond her. And so she runs to the gurgling brook because she knows that she's going to be able to get a drink. 
And so she approaches the brook and she kneels down and out of the corner of her eye, who's standing there but the lion? And so she has to choose between satisfying her thirst and probably living. This fear that this lion is going to tear her apart is resting on her and her blood levels through the roof and she's so anxious and so she speaks to the lion and she says, listen, I'm dying of thirst. Will you promise to not do anything to me if I come and drink? And the lion says, I make no promise. So Jill says, oh dear, I guess I need to go and look for another stream. And the lion said, you will die first. There is no other stream. And so Jill, never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. Lewis says, no one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. He says, it was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water with her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she ever tasted. Friends, do you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you? Are you one of the whoevers that Jesus called out for on that day? Acts chapter 2 says that heaven came down for you. God gave his spirit so that you, you might be satisfied in Christ alone. Every unmet desire that you have is meant to lead you to the well of salvation and to be enveloped by God's glory. Friends, every time we overeat, every time we overdrink, every time we overbuy, every hour we mindlessly scroll on our phones, we are on a quest. And today Jesus says to us, you are looking for me in those things. Come and drink and be satisfied. But friends, listen, you must come on the lion's terms. Hmm. It requires yielding. It requires surrender. It requires faith. Friends, God, God sent his Holy Spirit to show you and me just how thirsty we are, that we will die without living water. But he said that if you yield to me, you will find that I will quench your thirst like no stream can because there is no other stream but in me. Are you thirsty? Do you desire a passion for Jesus and not for these lesser mud pies that you've been playing with? Do you desire to turn away from your sin? Do you want to surrender to him? I once heard a guy say, you know, I'm not willing, but I'm willing to be willing. Are you willing to be willing? Friends, heaven came down on Pentecost to make this possible.
But the only requirement is, Jesus said, come to me. Turn away from all lesser loves, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water.